0: All right, well, when I was in college, I had a mentor tell me, Sam, when you get your first job as a pastor, before you preach on any, like wait a year or two before you preach on anything controversial or sensitive. Wait a year or two, build up trust, make sure that people know you care about them and then preach on something that is uh, sensitive or controversial. And so I was excited this week when Brent came to me and said, hey, here's this text I want you to preach on because obviously I have arrived. Uh, with a controversial uh, sermon. But I'm very excited to be with you this morning and talking about this because as from the text that we read, you can probably tell that this sermon has to do with government. and So that is what we are talking about. But first, before we dive into this, let me talk about a, a letter that I read when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I read a letter that was written in 1963 by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., And Dr. King wrote this letter from his cell in Birmingham City Jail. Some of you may have read this letter. If you took an AP U.S. history class, you may have read it. But Dr. King was in jail because he had been arrested for leading a nonviolent but illegal protest. What were he and his associates protesting? Segregation. They were protesting segregation. And Dr. King addressed this letter to some very interesting people. He addressed it to several church leaders. Church leaders that had been criticizing him for his demonstrations, saying that they were unnecessary, that they were disturbing the peace, and that they were inappropriate. And Dr. King responded to them with a 20-page letter, one that I have read several times, defending himself. And on page two of this letter, this is what he writes. This will not be on the screen, so just listen here with me. Dr. King writes, I am here in Birmingham because injustice is here. (laughs) Just as the 8th century prophets left their little villages and carried their thus saith Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown, which was Atlanta, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere." I begin with a quote from this letter because it addresses the same topic that our passage this morning addresses, which is government. Specifically, how do we as Christians relate with our governing authorities? Do we protest like Dr. King when we see that God's law is being broken by our authorities? Or do we do what the church leaders that criticized Dr. King were doing, keeping their nose out of it, minding the status quo? Or do we do both? How should we as the church relate to our governing authorities? That is the question this morning. And first, as we dive into this, let, us just re, let me just remind us where we are. We've been journeying through First Peter. And First Peter is, remember, he is writing to Christians who are in a non-Christian culture. They are in a culture that is even anti-Christian. And so he is telling them, hey, this is how you be Christians in a culture that is not predominantly Christian. He's telling them, this is how you interact with the different facets of life. And this morning, we have arrived at his discussion of government in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 17. So to kick us off, Peter says in verse 13, he says, Be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. In short, Peter says to his church and to us, he says, Submit to your governing authorities. Obey your governing authorities. Do what they tell you to do. And I want to encourage you, church, this is one of those topics that I want you to stick with me on. I want you to don't write, don't, clo- don't shut your ears. Because this is one of those passages we come to in the Bible. And sometimes we don't really know what to do with it. And sometimes we just kind of jump over it if we're reading through the book. And so what I want to encourage you to do is follow me as we walk through what Peter is saying. Don't, don't, uh, don't, don't turn your ears off. So Peter begins by saying, be subject to the government. Submitting to the government is actually... Um, Peter Peter says this actually does three very important things. He's not just blindly saying submit to the government. He gives us three very important reasons to do so. Number one, it pleases God. Submitting to our governing authorities pleases God. Verse 13, Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 15, after he has given the command to be subject, he says, For this is the will of God. Peter's saying if we're going to be obedient to God, then we must be subject to the institutions over us. And this is not out of line with what the rest of the biblical authors say. Paul in Romans 13 says something very similar. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for those that exist have been instituted by God. So as Peter is specifically telling his church, hey, submit to the governing authority over you which in Peter's day was an emperor. This was the Roman Empire. He's saying, submit to his authority. Do what he says. This pleases God. So this is the first thing submitting to government does. It pleases God. But there are two greater, two more reasons that kind of build on this, why it pleases God. Number two, submitting to our earthly authorities neutralizes accusations. It neutralizes accusations. What do I mean by this? Well, if we look at verse 15, Peter says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I like the NIV's NIV's translation of this verse. It throws the word talk in there. So the the verse becomes that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Remember, Peter's audience is in a culture that is anti-Christian, non-Christian. They are in a culture where they are mocked, laughed at, disliked. Being a Christian in this culture, in in this time and place that Peter is writing to, was like being the kid who doesn't know he has a sign on his back that says, kick me. The culture as a whole did not understand or like either Christianity or Christians. So as a result, ignorant accusations were made against Christians all the time. For example, we study this in my church history class. They were accused of things like cannibalism, which that sounds kind of crazy to us. Why would a Christian be accused of cannibalism? Well, if you can imagine, you have no, um, you have no understanding of the Lord's Supper or the language of it, and then this new crowd of people moves into your neighborhood and you hear about them receiving the body and blood of Jesus, You know, it kind of would rattle your mind a little bit, but they were accused of things like uh, ignorant accusations like uh, cannibalism. They were also accused of things like incest because they called each other brother and sister, and they were married, and it was kind of this weird relationship. So people just didn't understand them, and so accusations were thrown at them all the time. This kind of thing happens today, too. I was actually listening to a podcast Well, an interview with a a pastor of a large church, he he planted a church in a small town about the size of Batesville, and his church grew rapidly. It grew to about 1,000 people in three locations, and so people were naturally skeptical toward the church, and he was talking with a member in the community, and this member told him, he said, yeah, um, I was going to come to your church, but I heard someone told me that when I join your church, I have to give you my social security number and my my credit card number, and this pastor was mortified. He's like, no, we don't, no, where did you hear that from? So ignorant accusations get thrown at Christians a lot. But, you know, the Christians that Peter is writing to, they also had much more serious accusations they were dealing with. Accusations like, hey, these Christians are not worshiping the emperor. They're not bowing down to Caesar. Or they're claiming there was a resurrection. I mean, Christians were, they upset the norms of their society. Brent talked about last week about how Christians, you know, in a culture that was largely kind of promiscuous with their bodies, Christians were not. They kind of were more, they were more reserved with their bodies. So Christians were constantly upsetting society and kind of bringing in these new things that people didn't understand, so they were harassed for it constantly. And this is why Peter tells them, submit to your governing authorities. Do, like, be a good citizen. Do everything you can to be obedient because this will hopefully make people see you with generous eyes. When accusations are brought against you, whoever is investigating them will see that you are a good citizen and neutralize the accusation. It's like Peter is saying, hey, don't make yourself more of a target, Christian. You're already going to be a target because you have Jesus. If you've already got a sign on your back that says, kick me, don't put one on your chest that says, punch me. Instead, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people by submitting to the emperor. Be good citizens, church and fellowship. Peter is telling us to do the same. He's telling us to obey our governing authorities. Again, stick with me. Peter's going somewhere with this. Whether, and he's telling us to do this, whether we like them or not, whether we think they're correct or not, he's saying, submit. This is a part of our witness. When other people see our obedience to the law, our generosity towards society, and our care for our communities, our willingness to, to help out their negative thoughts, their negative stereotypes, their accusations against us are put to rest. Hopefully. That's the hope. That's why Peter's coaching them this. This is the heart behind Peter's instruction. He's saying do everything you can to make sure that you appear as a good citizen so that there's no obstacle, so that all accusations are, drops, are dropped. But Peter is not done. He says that if we are to truly neutralize accusations against us as Christians, we need to do something else. We can't just be good citizens because that will not distinguish us enough from the world. He says in verse 16, we should be servants of God. In verse 16, he says, "Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God." Two things about this first church. Number 1, Peter reminds them, "Look," he kind of brings up Romans 8:2, which says, "Look," he says, "Look, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death." He's telling them, "You are free. You have been freed from your sins. You can live with that freedom and enjoy it," he's saying. But he also tells them, number two, tell you about this first: Use your freedom correctly. Not, as he says, as a cover-up for evil. Meaning, do not use your spiritual freedom as some kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, he says, don't drive the wrong way up Main Street speeding, and then when the cop pulls you over, say, Sorry, sir, I, I, I'm, I'm, Jesus is my Lord, you have no authority over me. No, he's saying, no, that's dumb, don't do that. He's saying, use your freedom correctly. Use your freedom to live as servants of God. Verse 16. How do we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people? How do we deal with the stereotypes that we as Christians are labeled as in our culture? How do we neutralize those stereotypes? We serve God like Christ did. We love like Christ loves. Church, this is so important for us because accusations happen today too. Stereotypes happen today too. They're not exactly like Peter. You know, in Peter's day, if you were accused of not worshiping the emperor, they would come, and if you didn't bow down, they'd kill you. We're not in that situation, but we still have accusations and stereotypes put on us. There was a research study done by the Barna Group in 2018, published in 2019. They took 1,000 U.S. adults, and they said, All right, we want you to pick some, out of this list of words, we want you to pick some words that describe evangelical Christians. And when I say evangelical Christians, those are Christians that believe the Bible is true, we are saved through faith in Christ, heaven and hell are real, so biblical, biblical Christians here. Here's what they found. First, the number one word or phrase chosen to describe us by Christians, by Christians and non-Christians alike, was religiously conservative. Not generous, not loving, not Jesus, not kind. The number one description, chosen description of us, was political. Second, when only the non-Christians were considered, so when they took the Christians out of the the survey, and their data out of the survey, and just the non-Christians, less than 10% of them described us in terms like generous, friendly, caring, loving. At the same time, between 30 and 40% of non-Christians chose the terms politically conservative, narrow-minded, misogynistic, and homophobic to describe us. Here is what I want to sink in this morning, church. We are known more for our politics and our criticisms of culture's sexual morals than we are for Jesus. And we don't have to be completely naive because, I mean, the reality is, in popular media, Christians are almost never portrayed well. It just doesn't happen. And that probably affects this to some degree. But overall, in the culture, that is the predominant thinking toward us the fruit of the Spirit, which should be so evident, things like friendliness and generosity and caring, those were not the words chosen to describe us. If I were to suggest to you the two main accusations that we as Christians face today, I would suggest too political and homophobic. We have an image problem. And what do we do with it? Thankfully, Peter tells us. He doesn't leave us wondering. He says, first, be subject to every human institution. Obey your governing authorities. Be a member of society in that way. But he also goes further. He says, second and most important, live as servants of God. Love people radically like Jesus did. In verse 17, Peter says, honor everyone. That word honor, you could also use that word. That that word could be respect everyone, love everyone. And we hear that and we think, oh yeah, I can... All right, Sam, I can do that. Yeah, love everyone. I get it. Christ loves me. I need to love everyone. We've been hearing that since we were in Sunday school when we were that tall. We need to think about what Peter's saying here. Let's pause and think about this. Peter says, honor everyone, love everyone. Here's what that means. That means to love your neighbor. It means to love the Democrat, to love the Republican, to love the Libertarian, to love the liberal and the conservative to love the white, love the black, and love everybody in between, love the protester and the police, love the gay man and the bisexual woman, love your neighbor who mows their yard at 6 a.m. on a Saturday, and love the neighbor that doesn't mow their yard. This is a radical love that Jesus is calling us to, a love that if we are honest, we need help with to do. If we are going to live this out, we need help because we cannot do this on our own. So three steps to to grow this love in us, because this is what Peter is calling us to do. If we're going to neutralize all the stereotypes about us, we have got to learn to love radically. And so here's three things, three thoughts. Number one, remember the image of God, the Imago Dei. Abdu Murray is the senior vice president of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. It's an apologetics ministry. He, he sent out this quote this past week. He says this, kind of using the language of our, our current situation with the coronavirus and everything. He says, physical distancing much more accurately describes a practice health experts are calling for. But social distancing much more accurately describes what we're practicing culturally. Seeing the imago Dei, the image of God in others can bridge the social distance. Murray draws attention to the fact that we as Christians are so good at separating from one another, of dividing into camps and really kind of just loving those that are like us and looking at others. And this guy's church, this goes all the way back to sin. Separation is a result of sin. When when Adam and Eve sin in the garden in Genesis 3, you see separation immediately. Adam and Eve are pulled apart. They clothe themselves. They are pulled apart from God. They hide from God. We still see that effect of sin today. In our desire to pull apart, to only be with those that are like us, to divide into camps and divide sides. And so when Murray sees this and he says, this is, our, this is our cultural way of doing things right now, division. But Murray says to fix this, we need to remember the imago Dei, the image of God. We need to see people in the image of God again. We need to see that a person has value and dignity just as much as you do. When we look at someone... And we're tempted to judge or, th- or, or think negatively or something like that. We need to recall to our mind the fact that they have, in God's eyes, they have much just, va- just as much value and worth and dignity as me. When you think about someone like that, it's not easy to hate them or judge them. It's easier to love them. So, so step one, remember the image of God. Step two, remember the gospel. Specifically, remember that the sin of that person you are looking at, that you, know, you may see their sin so clearly, remember that their sin is no greater than your own. In fact, remember that you were just as filthy with sin when Jesus saved you as they, as they are now with sin, and Jesus still came to your rescue. You are not better than them. Step three, so remember the image of God, remember the gospel, remember your freedom in Christ. To quote Romans 8-2 again, Paul writes, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And this is something we hear in church a lot. You are free in Christ. What does that mean? Paul is saying, look, that power of sin in your life, that thing that causes you to want to separate and divide and cause division and, 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 and judge and do all these things, that power has been defeated in your life and it has been replaced by Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, Christ is alive in me. Meaning, if, if, you know, when we want to love people, we don't just talk ourselves up to it. We don't just go, oh, it's time to love people. Yes, I'm, I can do this. Jesus is with me. No, we look within ourselves and we see, okay, Christ is alive in me. His spirit is moving in me. There is a well of love that God has given us. It's not ourselves. It's Christ in us. Are you tapping into that reserve and finding the desire, the strength, to love people, love your enemies, love sinners, love those those that are different than you? Are you using the freedom that you have received in Christ? Because when you do, this neutralizes accusations. This defeats the stereotypes that we are given as Christians. And this allows us to not treat others like culture tells us to. We don't have to separate from those that are different from us because, in fact, we are called to do the opposite. And God gives us the strength to do it. We are called to meet with those that are different, that are lost in sin, that disagree with us. And we are called to share Jesus with them. And God gives us the freedom from sin to do that. Are you tapping into that reserve within you, Christ within you? Peter's calling us to love in a radical way because when we do that, ultimately Jesus is seen. We neutralize the stereotypes about us. And even more so, we create a loving space for conversation. We create a space for people to hear about Jesus. And this is the third thing that this kind of submitting to our governing authorities and loving does. Number three, it opens the door for people to hear the gospel. Third main point, doing, submitting to our governing authorities, loving people radically, opens the door for people to hear the gospel. Church, as we move into some applications, I want to emphasize Peter's heart in this passage Peter is not, um, the entire goal of being obedient to our government, to our governing authorities and loving others radically, putting ourselves aside and really focusing on loving others radically without discrimination is the proclamation of the gospel. Peter wants us to open every possible door and tear down every possible barrier to people hearing about Jesus. He wants us to be known more about Jesus than our politics. He wants us to be known for love because love ultimately points to him. So as we go into some application here, I've got five points of application that I think can help us apply this to our life. Number one, limit your speech. Every time I say that, my mind kind of does a double take because it sounds completely un-American. So let me explain what I mean. Limit your speech. This year will be full of opinions. I mean, every year is full of opinions, every day is full of opinions, but this year has already been full of opinions, there's a lot going on in our world, and as the November election gets closer, and as school starts, and as all these different things happen, opinions will be rampant. You have a choice to make, church, I have a choice to make. We all, as a group and individually, have a choice to make. Will your faith, you can, in the coming months, you can make your Facebook wall, your Instagram story, and your conversations with people about Jesus. Or you can make them about you, your party, your opinions, your arguments. Peter's calling us to recognize that the conversations we choose to engage in church, online or in person, and how we engage in them directly reflects Jesus. People will see Jesus or not see Jesus through, how we, through what conversations we choose to engage in and how we engage in them. Now to be clear, I'm not telling you to not talk about politics. I'm not telling you to not discuss how we should have the best public safety measures. And how, to, I'm not telling you to not discuss social justice issues. We Christians need to be involved in these things. What I'm telling you, I'm calling you to do from Scripture is to choose your conversations wisely. This was one of the first things I learned in my ministry classes at college. Shout out to spiritual formation. Dr. Duvall, if you're watching this, hello. I don't know. I doubt you are. But if you are, thank you. Um, my professor, Dr. Duvall, he sat us down first semester at college, ministry students. He said, he told us, students, there are hills that you will die on and there are hills that you should never die on. For example, we die on the hill of the doctrine of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we, would, we die for the truth that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We die for that. We defend that with our life. We do not, however, die on the hill of the decision to have drums in the worship band or not. Just not worth it. Our professor told us that's something you discuss, you decide, you move on. That's not a hill worth dying on. We need to choose our conversations wisely, we need to choose which hills to die on wisely. I got to to spend some time this past week attending a conference that was live streamed with some of our students. It was all about investigating the hard questions about Christianity. And I I was amazed at this conference because I was hearing all these speakers, Christians from all over the world, talking about all these issues related to the Bible's reliability, to are miracles a real thing, to the reliability of the resurrection, to sexuality, to mental health, to, to all of these different things. And I found myself actually very convicted at the end of this conference because I found myself asking, have I been having the right conversations with people? All of these conversations up here that these Christians are having on this screen have eternal significance. Have I been having the right conversations with people? We need to limit our speech, meaning we need to limit our conversations, prioritize the ones that matter most, the ones that point and lead people to Jesus. Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist, excuse me, Baptist preacher said this. He said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. In other words, if we must give our all to something, to to certain conversations, let them be about Jesus, about bringing people to the feet of Jesus. And this is the entire reason for Peter's encouragement in this passage, to be subject to our governing authorities. He wants our lives to point to nothing but Jesus. He wants us to be able to grab sinners by the knees and try to get them to Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we limit our conversation, limit our speech? Number one, before you engage in a conversation, just take a moment, pause, and ask, is this conversation worth it? Sometimes, most of the time, if you just take a second and think, is this worth is this comment worth it? Most of the time it's not. And but if it is, ask yourself, how can I be Jesus in this conversation? Let me give you an example using a current issue. Face masks. Yes, we're going there. We are going to face masks. I'm tempted to say that more ink has been used to debate whether or not we should wear face masks than to describe the doctrine of the Trinity throughout the history of the church. And we ask this question. It's a good question to ask. Should we wear face masks? We hear different things. They work. They don't work. The government is taking our rights. The government knows what it's doing. We hear so many things back and forth. So what do we as Christians do when the government tells us to wear face masks? Let me tell you what I think Peter would say and why. I think he would say, law or not, whether it works or not, wear it. Why? Well, one, because our government and World Health Organization are asking us to, and there's nothing in Scripture that prohibits it. But there is a lot in Scripture that says care about other people. So we wear a mask first so that we are not an unnecessary headache to our governing authorities and to other people who are now judging us based on whether or not we have a mask on. We wear a mask so that others know we care about them. I was talking with a a friend this week and uh, another friend of mine in ministry, and we were just talking about how it's almost like it's part of our witness now whether or not we have a mask on. Like if we don't have a mask, that could almost be a wall to someone hearing Jesus in us. And Peter just, he wants us to put everything aside that blocks people from hearing Jesus. So I mean I think honestly I think Peter would see the discussion taking place around mass and wonder why we're talking about it so much just wear it and move on to spiritual conversations about Jesus. Decide and move on. So limit your conversations to the ones that matter most. Number 2, we talked about this one a little bit already. When you look at people, recognize the image of God in them. Recognize the imago Dei. We need to stop seeing people as our culture sees them or as Fox News or CNN portrays them or MSNBC or whoever We need to see people as the Bible describes them. Every news outlet, everything on social media has a slant. Some way that they want you to see somebody. We need to see people. This needs to be our slant toward how we see people. We need to see that every person is created in the image of God. Consider what the gospel says about you, church. And if you're listening and you're not a Christian, this is what the gospel says about you. This is what the Bible says about you. That even though you have a problem of sin... God, saw, God sees enough value and worth and dignity in you to send his son to die for you. We need to see others, those that we disagree with, those that look different, those that act or say things we disagree with. We need to see them not for those things, but for the image of God that is in them. We need to love them like Christ loves us. And part of loving a person is having good conversations with them. So, application: we've got limit our speech. We've got recognize the imago dei. Number three: have good conversations. This applies to in person and online. Notice that I say conversations, Christians. I beg you, refrain from sharing things on social media that bash groups, people. <laughs> yes, Amen. Thank you, thank you, Dad. Um, <laughs> but it's so true. Peter's call in this passage is to get us to not to, 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 to lower every boundary to people hearing about Jesus. And when we bash people, is that opening any doors for the gospel? It's not getting anybody you're bashing or anybody who sees you bashing someone any closer to Jesus. And it's definitely not getting you closer to Jesus. So have good conversations. Avoid one-liners, I'm not going to lie, I like sarcasm, I like good zings, but that's not how we're supposed to have conversations. Loving a person means valuing them enough to talk with them, to understand them, to have a relationship with them. I heard a great quote at the conference I attended last week, it said, real love will never be at the expense of real truth, and real truth will never be at the expense of real love. You want to share Jesus with someone, you've got to have real truth and real love, real concern for them. Leading people to Jesus means walking with them in a relationship, so have good conversations. Number four, submit until you cannot. I know that some of you have been waiting for me to get to this point because you're, you're asking, Sam, do we really just submit to the government? Okay, well, I want to be clear. As Christians, we do not sit back from the world and not care about what is going on in it, and we do not blindly submit to the government. Human institutions are just that, humid. human, meaning they're sinful and flawed. And if we go back to 1 Peter 2, verse 17, we read kind of a, it's almost, he gives four little statements, and it's kind of like the, the, the storyline of a story. It has an introduction, honor everyone, and then it has a rising action, love the brotherhood, so we go from honor to love, and then it has a climax, fear God, so we go from honor to love to climax, and then it resolves, and it says, honor the emperor, it goes down. The only one that we fear and worship is God. Meaning, no pun intended, God trumps all. John Stott, another world renowned theologian, author, and preacher who's gone to be with the Lord, he says it this way He says, We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. When does the Bible permit civil disobedience? When the decree of God conflicts with the decree of the state. The decree of God always trumps, always wins. We can only obey God. To quote the apostles in Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. The apostles, when they were told to not to preach in the, books of Acts, in, the books of, in the book of Acts, they preached more. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were told not to bow down to the golden image, or excuse me, when they were told to bow down to the golden image, they refused. When Daniel was told that he couldn't pray to his God, he prayed to his God. When Do- and Dr. King refused to submit to laws that clearly disregarded the image of God, and he protested along with many others. So submit until you cannot. This pleases God. It also has a powerful witness. Sometimes the conversations we need to have are when we recognize that the government is not following God's, God's law. And we rise up when the image of God is violated and we call out for justice. Sometimes that removes the barriers between Christians and non-Christians. But notice this. Understand this. The point of civil disobedience is not to just rise up, as Hamilton says in the musical, and throw over the government. That's not the point of civil disobedience. The point of civil disobedience is to be able to proclaim Jesus more and better. And that's our last application point. Proclaim Jesus, number five. Peter's goal in this passage is not to tell us when it is okay to go against the government. We don't need to come to this passage thinking, okay, when can I not obey the government? Peter's goal is to call us higher. He wants us to remove as many barriers as possible so that people will hear and see Jesus in and through us. He says, be obedient to the government, because in doing so, people will see that you are not a troublemaker. You are a good citizen. And they will listen to you when you tell them about Jesus. Further, love each person as a servant of God so that they will know, so that people will know that you care about them. And they will listen when you tell them about Jesus. Or at least be open to you when you tell them about Jesus. Church, my call for you is to make the resounding echo of your life what people will write on your tombstone, what people will remember you for, make it Jesus Christ. Let me ask you now, What have you been proclaiming with your life? Are people seeing and hearing Jesus or you and your opinions and your arguments and your thoughts? I just want to conclude here. This is one of those sermons that there's so much in. So let me just say a couple of things. Number one, let me just sum this up for us. Church, how do we fear God yet honor the Emperor? As Peter says, well, we do this. We submit to our governing authorities. We love with the love that we have received. We love without boundaries or conditions. And we do this to neutralize all stereotypes and accusations against us. We speak less, letting the words that we do speak, speak about Jesus and point people to Jesus. Or if you like to speak, you speak more, but you aim for your words to be shaped by Jesus and to point to Jesus. I was talking to someone after first service and they were just talking and we were talking about how Jesus has given us the power to engage in a culture that is to engage with the culture in a way that is so different with how the culture engages with one another. You see someone post something on Facebook and it is like a war breaks out. And when a Christian can step into that and speak kindly and thoughtfully and lovingly and try to have conversation, we should, people see that there's something different about us. We give people the truth We see them in the image of God. And when our governing authorities do not treat people as image bearers, we call them out. We submit until we cannot, and we proclaim only one gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, take this thought with you as we conclude here. When we... I I think about what would it look... How amazing would it be if Barna did that same study they did five years from now, and instead of Christians being labeled as homophobic, misogynistic, narrow-minded, political... Now, political may stay up there because our faith influences our politics but what if along what if those bad terms were taken away and with politics up there terms like generous and hospitable and kind and friendly and loving what if all those were up there as well that even if christian even if non-christians couldn't accept our message they could still describe us as loving let that be our goal And let us continue the conversation after this. This is one of those sermons where I can only say so much. So please, if you have a thought, if you have a question, if maybe I've confused you about something or you have a thought and you're like, Sam, how does this apply to this situation? Come up and talk to me. Or if you're like me and you need to put your thoughts together, put your thoughts together and I'd love to get coffee or shoot shoot me an email and I want to talk further about this. This is one of those issues that is a good conversation to have. And so let's continue the conversation. For now, let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you Lord for how it doesn't leave us it doesn't leave our situation in this world without Father thank you for how it speaks into our situation Lord thank you for how it shows us to love in our culture Father I pray that as we go from this and as we just as we respond in worship now Lord that we would just consider how we are proclaiming you with our lives are we proclaiming you or are we having the wrong conversations are we turning the, the, the small conversations of life into the things that truly matter and turning the eternal conversations that save people and bring people to Jesus and lowering them to a low priority Father help us to evaluate show us where we are sinning show us where show us the conversations we need to have and the people that we need to have them with and help us to tap into that love that is within us recognize that you are alive in us it's not that we're just gonna get better at loving and talk ourselves into it it's that no, you have fundamentally changed something in us given us a new heart Lord help us tap into that keep us from going back to slavery, to sin Father we are so grateful for your word and just how it speaks into our life, it it addresses our situation and it encourages us and Father, as always, we thank you for loving us, for having, for bringing us Jesus. I pray that we would do the same. Amen.